This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Almost exactly a year ago, we were all together with the same speakers looking at a transition period. We thought then was the end of the pandemic. And it's been a long, <laughs> a long transition period toward the end. And where are we at now? It's a, it's a complex time where we are, we're in a bridge to an uncertain future. We have the, president, the presence and the residue of pandemic stressors, of moral distress, of different types of losses. So these are still with us and these can build up. And one important thing to remember is that as, as I like to say, one common storm, many different boats. And so people are experiencing very different levels of fatigue. I think we've, we all feel it, but to different extents. And burnout. And what is burnout? Burnout has been extensively studied. It's been thought of as, a, as depression from work, depression from overwork, from certain conditions, particularly for helping professions for healthcare workers. And we have a really lovely definition of burnout from Christina Maslach that's on our webinar page right now as a resource. It's just a few minutes. Christina Maslach has uh, developed good measurement of burnout. And she was also Eve Ekman's advisor. And we'll, we'll be talking about burnout with Eve soon. It is has different flavors, but mostly it has a component of emotional exhaustion as well as a numbing or depersonalization when you don't you feel very distanced from your caring it's hard to care about the things that you value and used to care about depersonalization it also makes people feel incompetent they can't do their job well they can't control outcomes she christina talks about communicate collaborate and persist talk about the work situations that are unmanageable and collaborate on solutions and reiterate and persist. And so we've gotten a lot of questions from you all about how to show up with burnout, how to deal with burnout in the workplace. So we'll, we'll be talking more about that as well as regeneration. What are the use of some strategies that we can use to revitalize? Is there something you can add? How heavy, how loaded down is your boat? And can you reduce any of the baggage? So we are living with uncertainty as we always have. It's just more salient. And I think it's easy. I, for one, often feel like life is on a pause. This isn't real. And we're just living in the future and, and making plans to make plans. And that is exhausting. And so one way to reduce this kind of Meant, you know, cognitive burden that we have with our uncertainty is to engage more with the present, with the present moment, to be in sensory contact with the present moment. So we have several exercises today to help us find our bodies again and embody our full being, our full range of emotions, including joy. So we're going to start with a meditation. So I'd like to introduce Trudy Goodman and Jack Cornfield. Jack is going to start us off with a meditation and Trudy is going to end our session today with a meditation. 
Uh, Jack Kornfield, uh, many of you know, he is a best-selling author, a clinical psychologist. Jack was with us a year ago and said some very profound things that I will, re um, will revisit. He's a founder of Spirit Rock in Insight Meditation Center, a Buddhist scholar and teacher of many, as well as a social activist. Welcome, Jack. Trudy Goodman, we're just so pleased to have you. Trudy is a clinical psychologist. She studied with Piaget, Kohlberg, and Gilligan. She has combined psychotherapy with meditation. She's the founder of, of the only institute that combines them, the Institute for Psychotherapy and Meditation. And now in the last decade, she has become the founder of the largest meditation center in LA, Insight LA, and which does a lot of humanitarian work. And Trudy also teaches in refugee camps in Sudan. So welcome both of you. It's so wonderful to see you and get to have you together. Um, they're also married. <laughs> uh, last, last month, we got to hear from Esther Perel and Jack Saul together. And I know you were are connected to them as well. So Jack, why don't we um, uh, turn it over to you to, to lead us. And if you feel um, you want to respond to this idea that there is some very you know high levels of burnout and fatigue, even though many of us feel being lucky with vaccinations feel that we're toward the end of pa the pandemic, uh, the data is showing and personal experience is showing there's a cumulative burden that we're carrying and we're not bouncing back like one might have thought. Sure. Thank you, Alyssa, for this. And also just thank you for gathering us together to help support and hold so many people on the front line in what has been such a difficult time. So rather than say so much, I'd like to invite us into a meditative presence as a way to begin, wherever you are, if you're able to, not driving or something, let your body be settled on the seat or chair where you are, feel the sense of being grounded on the earth, and take two or three deep breaths, slowly <coughs> breathing in and out and releasing what tension you can. And if you're comfortable, let your eyes close gently as you do so. And with this present moment awareness, I'd like us to bring the power of mindfulness, of mindful loving awareness to what we are carrying just here and now. So as you sit quietly, Bring your attention to the field of your body, to the sense of your body, the sensations, the areas of ease, and the areas of tightness and tension. The pleasures and pains. Bringing a mindful, loving awareness to your body just as it is. And acknowledge as you do, let yourself feel 
how much you've been carrying in your body during this time that you can feel just now. And in whatever way you can imagine, put the arms of compassion around your body for all that it's been carrying. Feel a tenderness, a kindness toward the weight you've carried. And then say thank you. Thank you to this dear body of mine for caring so much. I'm okay just now, you can relax. I'm okay just here. And notice what happens as you hold your body with compassion and gratitude for all that's carried. Thank you. And say, you can let things down now, I'm all right. Just here and now. And bring the same mindful loving awareness to the heart. The tears that we all collectively carry the longing, the hopes, the grief, the worry, the tenderness, the joy, the frustration. Your heart carries so much, it's had to carry so much. And as if you could wrap your hands of kindness, loving awareness and compassion around your heart or offer your heart, a moment of tender gratitude. <clears throat> thank you. Thank you for caring so much during this time. <sighs> thank you. You can relax just now. I'm okay just where we are just now. You can relax. And breathe gently. And let the heart soften with all that it carries. I'm okay. And notice how this loving awareness attention to the heart affects you. And finally to the mind, the busy mind of thoughts and plans and concerns and cares and worries and memories and organizing and strategizing that whole busyness as if you can witness it with loving awareness now. Holding it with kindness and say, thank you. Thank you for doing so much to try to protect me, to keep me safe, keep everyone safe. You can relax just now. Thank you, I'm okay just now, you can relax. And just be, come to peace right now.
And with this gratitude and loving awareness, body, heart, and mind, letting go into the present moment. I'm okay just here, seated on the earth, breathing in and out with goodwill and kindness. Inviting stillness, steadiness, and a field of love to hold it all. Thank you so much, Jack. That was beautiful. And a collective thought of much needed. <laughs> I have, I took a break from planning my uncertain future. Next, we're going to have, ask each other some questions. And once we've all asked a question, we're gonna come back on and answer your questions. And first question I'm going to direct to Eve. And Eve, this was a question that a lot of people share, which is, I am not at my 100%. I am not able to do all that I could before. How do I show up to work and, and connect and communicate with my colleagues when I feel guilty leaving them with more burden and not being fully myself. And Eve, you have studied burnout. You've worked as a social worker in, in um, general hospital and you are an expert on emotions. So I'm particularly curious your thoughts at this time of both how to, how to be well with the heaviness we, we may feel and how you revitalize yourself. Thank you, Alyssa. And yes, welcome to everyone watching live and everyone who will be watching in the weeks and months and hopefully years to come. It's such an honor for all of us to be here with you all. The work of frontline providers and staff in this last year, as always, but especially this last year has been humbling. And I think many of us here on this call have wondered what more can we do to support you all. And hopefully today we can provide some ideas, some tips, some practices that you can use today that you can share with others. We will also be guiding you through as Jack just so beautifully did to some of these tender places in the heart, creating that safe container in our own body to then open up to one another. And importantly, uh, directly relating to your question, Alyssa, what do we do right now? I will have to rely upon a great body of research and own, my own personal experience that right now we actually can't do this alone. Arguably, we can never do this alone. So it's interesting that we go inward and, and we connect with a lot of these practices of well being that have been very well demonstrated by research, thousands of years of contemplative practice. 
But it's so important for us to keep in mind that what we go inward to forge and strengthen our kindness, our care, our ability to be more flexible and resilient is actually so that we can be in relationship with each other and the world more fully. And keeping that in mind is not only helpful in that we get what the purpose is, but it's actually helpful for that very meaning, which is purpose. So when Alyssa beautifully described burnout, we see that there are these overlapping domains and dimensions that people experience. The exhaustion of just every single day showing up and over amplifying our smile, our connection, and suppressing some of our difficult emotions like fear, uncertainty that was just spoken about. Also, we often are trying to suppress our frustration, maybe even our jealousy and envy. I saw my friends on social media, they don't have to work as hard as me, right? So we have all these roilings of difficult experiences. And when we are suppressing them throughout the day, it can make us feel kind of flat and disconnected. So that practice we did, that was just a couple minutes. And hopefully for some of you, what you were able to experience is a, a returning. What's here now? Can I be with what's here now? Don't really need to change it. So we think about how do we address this emotional exhaustion piece of burnout? And that is really by actually turning towards our emotions. It's so counterintuitive. That's exactly what I wanna get away from, those feelings of frustration and anxiety. And yet we make this nice safe container and we can work with them well, so simple. The other piece of burnout, the cynicism and negativity that Alyssa described, you know, I think we hear that in some of the questions that were presented to us beforehand. It's very difficult to not fall into a feeling of, you know, this has just been too much and too long and I'm over it. You know what? Eve said I should practice connection. I'm going to go tell someone else I feel that way. And so cynicism is almost like this kind of contorted, twisted way we find connection. We find connection but only through shared negativity. And though a little bit of venting can be so helpful, we're getting heard. When that's our ongoing everyday cycle, we're actually perpetuating it. A beautiful study by Christina Maslach, she looked at an entire hospital. She gave everybody a burnout scale and then also asked everybody, who do you spend time with? What she discovered was that the people who were the most cynical spent time together. So I, one invitation for us is how do we actually forge and create meaningful social connection while we're stressed out? How do we say, yeah, things are hard. And what are you grateful for? What feels okay? I've been so fortunate to work with the Department of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UCSF, Family Community Medicine, and getting to do trainings with the residents and staff on burnout. And I'm really aware that when I'm talking about these tools and skills, I'm talking about what we can do and what we can do with others. But I wanna name, which is really important, is that burnout is a systemic issue. It has to do with not only the culture of a hospital, but the fact that there are chronic insufficiencies in resources that we may give everything we can to a patient, but that we don't have enough time with them or the patient can't follow up on resources or their referral for radiology is four months out. So really taking into account and recognizing for many of you on the call, we're going to focus on what we can do at an individual level and what is needed at an institutional level is huge. So the last thing I want to share just briefly is what is also important is how we make meaning. 
So Alyssa suggested that when we feel like we can't get something done, we can't do our work, that is another source of burnout. So I'd really like to invite my friend and colleague, Dan Siegel, next to transition to this important topic of, Dan, how do we find and create meaning amid these very difficult circumstances? Thank you, Eve. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you, Trudy and Jack. It's um, really an honor to be here with you and with everyone gathered. And Eve, this question about meaning is so important and it relates to all the powerful things you were just describing about what do we do when we're in the healing profession and we're here to be a benefit to others and yet we can feel so frustrated, we can feel so hopeless at times, so helpless. And I know in my own training, uh, becoming a physician, you know, the idea was to take all these scientific findings and learn the practice of medicine and whether we were in directly in medicine or nursing, you know, we were there to really help. And when you face then a situation where you're doing the best you can, but people are still dying, that you don't have the resources and everything that we've been confronting with this COVID year or the what some people call the year that shall not be named, you know, as if it's part of Hogwarts uh, and Harry Potter, you know, it's this idea that we are really dealing with a sense of helplessness. And yet um, we try to arm ourselves with all these ideas. So if we do this blend of um, making sense using our intellectual mind, like say, okay, I've decided to devote my life to nursing, to medicine, to healing in whatever way I'm doing it. And this is a very challenging period, not just for me, but for all of my colleagues, for all the people at UCSF, all the people in the medical system I'm in. And in fact, it's a challenging time for all of humanity. You begin to find meaning through making sense and saying, I see, I'm part of this pandemic that is presenting all of us with challenges. But another way of finding meaning, and it's fascinating in the brain, you know, meaning and emotion are woven together. When, when you find meaning, it's emotional. And when you are emotional, it's mean, it has meaning to it. And it's amazing, even those areas of the brain are deeply connected to relationships, interpersonal relationships, and our relationships with nature. And they're related to the body. So what I found really meaningful during this year was not just to try to find meaning in the making sense of my intellectual mind, which, you know, as a part of the healing profession we're trained to do, but also to become fully embodied. And I'd like to share with you, even with everyone, um, an embodied practice, because even when you look at the brain as a, you know, one aspect of who we are, you know, when we spend a lot of time like thinking, 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 and doing what Alyssa Apple beautifully was talking about, about, you know, planning to plan and, uh, but I'm uncertain, what do I do? You know, that creates a lot of reactivity. And in Jack's meditation, he was inviting us to really go from a reactive state, which our thoughts themselves can create and try to move to a receptive state. And one way to do that, in addition to the beautiful words Jack was giving us, is actually to move to sensing the bodily feelings we have, the bodily sensations. And even in the brain, you can show that these sensations are brought into awareness on the lateral parts of our brain, whereas the 
busy, busy chatter that can get us really worried about planning and what's going on and I feel helpless are more midline. And these two are in contradistinction to each other. That is, the more you could just feel the body, the more you invite the chatterbox mind to relax. So it's a really interesting neurological finding that we can use as people facing challenges. And I invite you then to get ready to do this embodied movement. So make some space around you. Clearly, if you're driving, listening to this, you, you can't do this and wait till you can listen to the recording. I'm going to take a step back a little bit. But what I want to invite you to do is um, just see if you can let your intellectual mind, which is so important, but it's just one part of a bigger story of who you are. Let that mind take a pause. And now I'm going to invite you to use a different aspect of processing information, if you will. And this is the information from your body. And we become aware of that through sensations. So one thing I learned when I was in medical school, learning some of these techniques, is that this area of your hands, especially where your fingers meet your palm, is especially sensitive to feeling something that's rarely talked about in classical conservative medicine, but it's actually a part of what the universe is made of. It's called energy. And actually, you can feel the energy as a sensation. So let's just begin by letting that part of our palms come to an area basically between your where your umbilical cord used to be your belly button and your pubic bone. See if you can feel where you'll sense there's like, whoa, there's a lot of energy there. It may feel like a density. It may feel like heat. It may feel just like a, a kind of a pushing in there. Just see if you can sense where that is and then let your hands rest there. Try right on the bottom, left on the top, and then flip it around. See whichever way. There's no right or wrong. Just feel which way feels most um, directly sensory to you. So for me, it happens to be right on the bottom, but other people it's left on the bottom. Now, once you feel that, we're going to do a brief exercise of seeing if you can now let from this energy center is what we're going to call it. And in traditional um, Chinese medicine, there's a, a word for it, um, for this chi center. Basically, we'll call it the energy center. See if you can let it lift up in front of the front of your body with your hands are slightly tilted, slightly going forward like that. And see if you can feel the energy rise to your heart level. And now at that level, let your hands turn back and aim back down toward your energy center. Let them slowly move down. And let's do a few cycles of this. And you can close your eyes if you feel comfortable doing that. And just see if you can feel the energy moving from your energy center up to your heart level. And then down. That's great. Good. And that just lets you feel the energy of the body. And now let's do on this next one, let it go all the way up to your forehead level. So now you're going to raise it past the heart level, bring that energy all the way up. You may feel a rush in your head. That's okay. All the way to your forehead and then down back to the energy center. And on the next time, we're even going to go above the forehead to the top, to the crown of the head. And just see if you can just feel that energy. That's great. And now bring it back to the energy center. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you three of nine movements. These are what are called integrative movements. This is inspired by a combination of 
the ancient tradition of Tai Chi and Qigong, as well as modern dance and just uh, a view from a field I work in called interpersonal neurobiology, where we see integration defined as differentiated aspects of a system being linked, like different people on a medical team having different roles and then linking together for a common goal or a choir singing together in harmony. These would be examples of integrative relationships we have. Even in the brain, you can show that integration is the basis of well-being. And we're going to do integrative movements in the full practice. There are nine. And the first is we raise our hands from the energy center. So place your hands back in the energy center, grounding you there. Feel that sensation of grounding your whole body. You can bend your knees a little bit if you want, just to feel yourself rooted in the earth. And now let your hands come up to heart level. The first of th these three domains we'll do is called interpersonal integration. And just feel the movement of the hands coming forward in a gesture of giving and then coming, opening up like this, and then receiving as you come back to the heart level. And then going forward as you give with generosity and humility, and then hands open are ready to receive from others with gratitude and openness. So giving with generosity and humility and receiving with gratitude and openness. And just let this movement now without my words be symbolizing this important relational integration, interpersonal integration and feel a few cycles of the back and forth and what that feels like in your body. Very good. And now when you come to rest at the heart level, we're going to, what we're going to do now is the second of the three domains we're going to do today. And you lift up to the sky, remembering why you joined this healing profession, the ideals that you had, the meaning, the purpose that you had. And that's symbolized by reaching the sky. And then with the hands going out to the side, we now come back down to earth and we ground our ideals in practical tools of helping others. And then you come up crossing at the heart level, hands crossing over, reaching up again to the sky, all the ideals that gave you meaning and purpose that are still there, even with the frustration of the pandemic, you still have deep inside of you the meaning making purpose of why you joined this beautiful profession you're in. And then we ground in practical things and now let's just go through these cycles without my speaking, ideals up to the sky, grounding with practical ways of helping as we go down. And if you want to try the knees in it, the knees would extend as you're reaching up and then slightly bending as you come down. The second of our domains, some would call this temporal integration for various reasons, that we have the ideals that cross time and we have the clock that reminds us we have to be practical and keep a schedule. We're timeless and time bound. Do a few more cycles of that. And we'll get to our third domain and our final one for today. Now, when you come down, let your hands cross over in front of you like a big hug. And this is called identity integration. And this is really something I find as a person who's a clinician very helpful, especially during the pandemic, 
to realize that yes, you have, and you can feel it, you have a body, you are a me, you are an individual and you're unique and it's very important, but yourself, who you are is not just in the body, it's also relational. So we start here with the me, but then we let the hands come out and embrace the whole. We are all of humanity. And in fact, we are all of nature. And you come make a big circle, cross over with a big cross back to you. You are a me. And then you come around again and make these circling movements. And you are also a we, the relationships with people and the planet. And so in many ways, this is me plus we equals the integrated identity of the funny word, we. And this is the integration of identity. And I'll stop using my words and just feel what that feels like, knowing what it's symbolizing, the meaning of it, but feeling it in the body. Let's just do two more cycles. Very good. And in the full movement, we'd go on to do six more, but here, let the hands cross and now bring them back down to the energy center. And now let's just do a couple of raises up above the head and then back down and just grounding the energy. We were just moving around relationally and making meaning one more time up. Just feel it as we come back to the energy center and now let yourself put your hands back at the energy center and ground yourself there because the body is what's going to take you around, but it's more than a transport vehicle. Your body is a deep source of wisdom and intuition, of grounding that can be, stay present with you to help you find meaning. And literally sense-making, making sense, is on the one hand intellectually saying, why am I here? What's the purpose? but it's also feeling the senses of the body. And this allows you to integrate both your intellectual mind, very important, and let your intellectual mind that can sometimes get burnt out, get grounded in the body and feel the love and the ideals that drove you to become a healing professional. They are still there. And no matter what difficulties we face individually or in our clinics or as a humanity, we will proceed forward together in finding a way to bring healing into this world. And that can give purpose and meaning. And it allows us to really stay present with what we're going toward and deal directly with burnout. So thank you so much for participating in this segment of our integrated movements. And I invite you to go to the link and learn the rest of them. Um, and, you know, this all raises the question, you may say, well, if this is a way of being present, you know, how do I actually stay present and also be present with my worries? And I want to turn this to Trudy, if that's okay, Trudy, and ask you the question, in your, you know, decades of, of practicing and wisdom traditions, how do we stay present on the one hand, but what do we do with our worries and stay present with our worries? Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Just even you're asking me that question, I can start worrying right away. And uh, but I want to just also offer my gratitude for being here, for having a chance to do something besides, you know, bang on pots and pans or howl to say thank you to all of you who are 
working so hard to keep everybody as safe as possible. So thank you for that. You know, worry is really, it's, it's a kind of, it's a mental suffering to worry. And these teachings that we offer for mindfulness and self-compassion, um, they're really about ending suffering. But I don't know about you, it's not easy to end worrying. And I'm just going to share with you sort of some, my personal experience with worrying and what I do about it, because I am a worrier, not a warrior, a worrier. And I come from a long line of um, anxious females in my family. And uh, we just worry a lot. And you, I mean, you can ask Jack if he's late coming home from a run. I, my mind instantly has him fallen. His phone is out of reach. He can't call. It's dark out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, we know that worrying doesn't help. The Dalai Lama, <laughs> quoting a famous ancient text, said, you know, basically, if you can't fix it, why worry about it? And if you can fix it, then just fix it. Do something about it. That's simple to say. It's not easy to do. I know that um, I've asked teachers, I've asked therapists, I've asked, what, what do you do about worrying? Um, I have a brain that writes dystopian novels, chapter novels in an instant, in a flash. And, you know, this kind of can happen all day long if I'm not mindful. So what helps me with the worries is uh, it's taking a step back and sometimes it's even physical, just literally moving the body back a little bit uh, into a state of receptivity because worrying the mind is going out toward the future generally. I mean, we worry about things from the past, but especially now with all the uncertainty in the world that, you know, um, that we've all been experiencing and talking about, we worry about the future. And so the mind that is tipping forward into anticipating and worrying about the future uh, can actually be invited to step back and to simply receive this present moment. And, and of course, this is the practice of mindfulness. Now, if you're like me from a long tradition of warriors, and in fact, I don't know, I mean, in our family, and I think it's maybe true for, maybe it's culturally true for other Jewish families, but worrying was a form of caring about somebody. You worry about them and that's supposed to protect them. You know, worrying is supposed to have a protective um, element to it, but it doesn't, it really doesn't. So it's worth, I have discovered, uh, when I catch myself, when I notice that my mind is worrying, uh, to just take sometimes even a physical step back, just to move back and take a deep breath and look around and say, what is here right now? You know, this is something we can do um, with trauma memories, traumatic memories too, just remind myself right this minute, I can see, hear, taste, touch what's happening. I can be present with it. And in that, when I'm doing that, it actually interrupts the momentum of, of worrying because worrying can have a 
very powerful momentum. Um, and in terms of what Eve said, talking, relating to people can help too. Sharing worries, but up to a point because it's kind of like cynicism. Worrying can be contagious. If I share a worry with you that you didn't think of before, good, now you have something else to worry about, right? So to be mindful about um, you know, what, what is the impact of what we're gonna share with somebody about our worries. And then there's another piece, which is self-compassion. Worrying, as I said at the beginning, it's a form of mental suffering. And so I can be kind of tender with myself about that. As though I'm mentally saying, you know, I, I noticed I was doing one of Dan's um, hand movements, just they're very comforting as if I'm mentally saying they're there, it's okay. Something comforting to myself. Um, worrying is painful. And, you know, we, we like to quote Mark Twain, who said, some terrible things have happened to me in my life. Um, and some of them actually did happen. Now, the key word is some of them, right? They didn't all happen. And most of our worries will not come true. I, uh, I recently learned that you know, worrying is also just like, as I was saying, in our Jewish family, it was a form of, uh, I would say, misunderstood or misguided protection. Like, this is how you express love. You worry and you're concerned. Um, but another function of worry is to try and control our experience. Maybe if we worry about it enough, <laughs> we'll get it right. And, um, and I just learned there's a psychologist named Ellen Hendrickson at BU, Boston University Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. And she explains there's two kinds of control that we can have. And, you know, when we think of control freaks, that expression, we usually think of, you know, people who always want to keep everything under control, uh, but it's kind of rigid and there's another kind of control actually. Um, and it's creating a lot of space. Um, give, if you're worried about your horse, give your horse a big meadow to roam around in, right? And the other kind of control has to do with accepting the fact that we can't control everything and that there's so much that we really don't control. And so primary control is trying to change the world out there around me. And secondary control is actually adapting, adjusting, making peace, being present with what's happening in me and around me. And research studies have shown that people who have a higher level of secondary control are just a lot happier with their lives than people who have this primary control. And the last thing I wanna say in terms of just stepping back and receiving the moment is that life is offering us an endless invitation, an invitation to be present, to enjoy, to love that, to realize we do have our life in our hands. And I think the serenity prayer is a great antidote to worry. I'll just remind you of it. God grant me, God, or however you envision God, grant me the serenity 
to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. What we can change is our own hearts and open to receiving this endless invitation offered by life. So thank you all for all you do. Now, I have a question for you, Jack. Yes, dear. But I kind of like yes, this. Yes, <laughs> I kind of like you to surprise me. You have such beautiful wisdom and um, yeah, what would you like to share? Well, we have a bit of time left and I've loved listening to all of you, to Eve and Dan, to Alyssa and to you, of course, and Wace. Almost all. <laughs> Depending <laughs> being, on how controlling I'm being, being, right? Being married as we are. <laughs> we have a wonderful marriage. It's really fun. Uh, I hope you could see from the original first meditation that we did together or the movements that Dan led and so forth, that it doesn't take very long to come back and begin to regulate yourself. Part of what happens is we get so caught up and then it's as if we can't take a break. But when Trudy says to take a step back or to bring that quality of mindfulness that Eve spoke about or what we just did in the first meditation for five minutes of 10 body, heart, and mind. All of those can be very short. And I have so much respect for what you're carrying and can actually feel the tears of it. I think of visiting the Lincoln Memorial where he speaks about binding up the wounds and caring for those who born the battle. And we're in this collective, uh, this collective field of suffering and care um, that both the world has presented to us, but also that we've chosen to do. And how do we carry this? So the story I want to tell now is of a friend who is a psychologist that worked for the United Nations. And her work was a specialty in working with people who've been tortured. So she heard in incredibly difficult stories from people all around the world and the sad thing is she heard them from people in 110 different countries. And you name the country, including the US. And it's, you know, it's possible to hear that and heartbreaking. When she would try to meditate, she started to get more and more stressed. And even when she tried to meditate, all the images would come back. So I, I explained or offered to her both inner and outer practices to work with the grief and the trauma that she had seen and heard about or that she was carrying. And first I asked her if she could uh, to do some rituals in the office where she worked to make an altar behind her and put on it everybody that she knew that she'd ever heard of who might offer blessings. And so there were images of Mother Mary and Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, and the Buddha and, you know, a page of the mercy of Allah from the Quran. And there were gods from the Haitian, you know, Haitian spiritual tradition. So that when people came in to see her, they saw who was behind her. I said, because you need backup. But even if you can't do it there, make an altar at home and put on it, whether it's those that inspire you in that way, or you can have a picture of Marie Curie or Einstein or Asclepius and, and, 
panacea, the great or the grandmothers. And each day before you go to work, make a bow, place a little offering, a flower or a, a, a piece of fruit, make a prayer. And most importantly, say, will you carry this for me? Because it's not right for you. And it would be kind of, it's just wrong. It's not your job to carry the suffering in your body and your heart. You're a servant of something greater. And when you make that prayer, feel yourself say, may I empty myself and serve and leave it in your lap. And then during the day, when you're able to, if you can take a pause, we talked about rituals that she might do between each patient to wash your hands, to again, re-envision the altar and say, all right, now, Mother Mary or whoever it is, please carry this for me. To, to, to walk around the block when you get home each day to make a ritual where you, where you take a shower, um, to, to have a song that you play every day that you come home that uplifts your spirit, uh, to do those things in a ritual way that remind you that you're part of something so much bigger than what's given to you. And then as we've talked about how interpersonally how important it is, and then also share them because the trauma is blocked in when we don't tell our stories. And when I work with combat vets or Trudy work with uh, nurses from the NICU, you know, they couldn't tell anybody the stories of the people who died, of babies who died, or the, the combat vets. I can't tell you what I saw, but we can tell one another. And then you can make a sponsor. You can find a partner and say, will you be a self-care partner for me? And every day I will text you three things that I've done to care for myself and you text them back to me. So these are just very practical ways to step back from feeling that you must carry it all, to find ways to release each day and to connect yourself with that sense of the sacred and the lineage of all the healers that are carrying this, that you are a part of and it's not individual. So I hope this is helpful. And now uh, I ask uh, Alyssa to add and yes lead us further i am i'm so happy to uh have you bring this up or i was going to have to in a less eloquent way um which is we have so many people who are feeling empathic distress they might be in through their work it might be through a service job or someone who lives with us is unhappy or depressed or suffering. So we all are in contact with our, our own suffering or others. And what you have said so well, Jack, is you can be there to witness and hold, but not carry. You don't need to carry the distress that you're witnessing. You don't need to put it in your boat. And, you know, what, what can you unload? And I love the uh, I, I just heard about a, the George Floyd Memorial. Maybe, maybe you heard too, his aunt, his aunt was speaking about how it's a place for people to come and, and unload their grief and for him, but also for themselves. And she was describing how someone came who was clearly um, in pain from loss and wouldn't talk or... Um, or share it. And she basically said, there is space here to hold it all. It's okay. And I love Dan, your example of the, you know, the jar of water 
I, I don't know that we have time for for hearing the whole um, analogy, but just that if you have a huge vat, the salt is diluted and we can handle it. So it's that being with the sadness, naming it and letting it coexist with the current flow of ebb and flow of life. So I wanted to turn to Liz. Uh, Liz is a professor emeritus at UCSF. Although you say you retired, I know how busy you are. So I'm not really believing that. Um, in order not to retire. <laughs> <laughs> we have been very busy with a, um, you know, a telomere vaccination study, which we'll get to share later, later this year. Liz has been, and her team has been instrumental. So Liz, last year, you said something very profound, which is, let's not let this crisis go to waste. And your vision for global collaboration in science is not just a great idea. It is. It will save our lives and the world's lives. So when we think about the climate crisis, the only way to solve this is these these uh, connections across countries and the world. And science is going to be part of that. And so I would love to hear, last year you told us about the Nobel-Lindo Agreement, which is to declare that scientists commit, like a Hippocratic Oath, to collaborate, to adhere to ethics. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's easy to say, but how do you do it? What do you say when you talk to young scientists? What is your message? Do you see movement in this area? Lisa, thank you for letting me be on this wonderful session. Um, yeah, I think the panic, pandemic has had an aspect, which is it has been hopeful for embracing what will become, I hope, more new normals, such as the one one you talked about and, and in my profession, profession you know, becoming more uh, about how we do science and moving from not only the sort of more traditionally valued individualistic and border-based science, often it was this nation exceeding over another or it was some individual sort of lording it over another. And, and that really took away, while individual creativity is so important, that kind of thing also took away something which we've been talking about all throughout this session, and that's the theme of connectedness. Because one of the joys of being in the profession of science has been that connectedness you make with other scientists when, when ideas just ripple up to the surface with con conversations, connecting with people. So we can't think of science as being just only individualistic and competitive. And as you pointed out, you know, we're dealing with big, challenging, not only scientific questions, but big, challenging needs. The pandemic, I think, has had, of all its suffering its cause, it has also had a good effect, and I think it's made us realise, and people have started acting on how important it is to, to collaborate. The climate crisis has been doing that for ages, and, and I think the pandemic has almost given us a time to pause and really realise that. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Yes, uh, I I just wanted to sort of, um, what's the word, sort of get down in some sort of form. How could we embody these ideas? And as you said, one way was um, through an interaction with hundreds of international young students that happens every year normally, although it doesn't in pandemic years happen. 
between lots of Nobel laureates and hundreds of young scientists who all gather in one place for a week and just talk. And so we sort of came up with this idea that we would think of what is it about your purpose in being science, young science, being in science, young scientists want purpose in science. And so newly energized would be having the sorts of things which embody not only doing science well, but, but also doing it with purpose and idealism, which brought so many people to doing science. So, um, you know, this, this is still moving along. Again, we, you know, had pandemic year. We're about to have another pandemic year, um, sadly, in much of the world. And uh, so a lot of this is online. But I think the idea is catching on. So one of the greatest things um, in science, it used to be, oh, my gosh, this was my idea. Wow. Wow. This is great. It's catching on. So I'll just give you one example. UNESCO is now drafting. It's got out in public. You can comment on it. A new draft for how do you do international collaboration in science? So a lot of ways, this sort of thing has been, I think, triggered in part by the pandemic, certainly by the climate crisis, that we can do so much more and contribute so much more in science when we not only individually use our creativity, you know, hard work, experimental expertise and so forth, but when we interact, um, you know, Alyssa has taught me so much about interacting because we came from very different fields about a couple of decades ago. And it was just wonderful to me to learn from Alyssa. And I hope she's enjoyed learning from me as much as I've enjoyed learning from her and the many collaborators and the kinds of research that gets done by Alyssa and collaborators and people in her general field um, and how much we can learn from each other and then, you know, bring a richness and I hope even, you know, more effect to, to that. So yes. beautiful. My, my, um, my thought, I just had to say one little thing because Eve said, Eve talked about cynicism <laughs> and it just suddenly brought a memory back of a, of a collaborative study some years ago where cynical hostility was measured in a very big United Kingdom study. And it turned out that those with high cynical hostility, that was the measure, were had shorter telomeres in their immune system cells than, than average, those who weren't cynical. And that is a kind of guideline a measure the shorter telomeres is a sort of indicator as a biomarker that the immune system is not going to be working so well so when i heard cynicism i couldn't resist but just an example of how bringing very different fields together sometimes gives you ways of looking at problems that you wouldn't have had if you'd stayed much more individualistic yourself i'm just so grateful for all of you attending and all of your time my friends my speakers here Have a wonderful day, and I will see everyone soon. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.